I do believe we are better together. It's it's not about like the response to patriarchy is not matriarchy. It's partnership. Well, friends, welcome back to the podcast. And do you see my fancy editing skills? We got a little intro clip here. It's in the biz, what they call a teaser. Give you a little little taste of what we're going to be talking about here. That's my friend, April Diaz. April is going to be joining us here on the podcast in just a moment. April leads Azer and Co. And she'll talk about that in a minute. She'll talk about what they do. But we get into all kinds of great stuff in this. We talk about how men and women work and lead together in partnership. I confessed to her some ridiculous things that I did while I was trying to figure out how to work with female staff well and didn't realize like some of the baggage that I was bringing into that. She shares about some safeguards that she and her husband have in their marriage without sort of reverting into the Billy Graham rule, which we talk a bit about if you don't know what that is. We talk about how churches that, that have been empowering of women might actually not be as empowering as they have thought and talks about some ways to deal with that. She shares about why investing in female leaders is worth it. And I think you will figure out pretty quickly, we're friends, we have fun together. It's pretty evident in those first few minutes. And so if you stick through that, those first couple of minutes, where we're just kind of are having some fun together, we get into some really good stuff. So I think that you're really going to enjoy April. So let's get over to it. All right, friends, well, welcome back to the podcast. It is good to have you here. I'm trying out something a little bit new. My friend, April Diaz is here with us. Do I, do I need to say that with an accent? Because <laughs> I'm looking at you right now and you're pretty white. I'm literally and... in the house and I am a fake Hispanic. So April is here in person. And so I've got this whole like little recording setup that I've never gotten to use before mm -hmm. to try and do in-person podcasts. So hopefully this is actually recording. I'm here to revolutionize things, Mike. Yeah. Well, April, you are the founder of Azer & Co., and which I looked up on your website, it says that you're activating women towards wholeness and life and leadership in full partnership with men. So does that mean that you do not care about men, that you only want to like help women? <laughs> you literally just read our mission statement. <laughs> you're funny. And uh, a jerk. So you're an author, a certified coach, you're a preacher, you're a speaker. And we got to know each other quite a bit more when, for a year, uh, you served as a teaching pastor with me at the church that, that I was leading here in Long Beach. And so the first question I want to ask you stems out of that. Oh, no. Is, why was I the best boss you've ever had, <laughs> and how come nobody else has ever measured up? Oh, my gosh. So that was a really fun year. Honestly, it was so great. You and me and Goody Goodlow and, you know, the team of pastors from the church as well. That was so fun. I'm so grateful for that year. And I can't believe that you actually invited me to be on the team because I was like this weird girl that lived in Orange County, not L.A. Yeah, we're not, you know, for those of you that are not in the Southern California area, Orange County is a very different experience than Long Beach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you invited me and I said yes. And it was delightful. And I enjoyed every single time. It was a lot of fun. It was fun. And we still get to hang out, which has been a gift for me. Same, same. So I remember actually having a conversation where you were starting uh, this company, Azer & Co., and you're starting to talk about it. We were at lunch with a mutual friend of ours named Jason, and we're sitting mm. around a table, <laughs> and you're telling us about, like, here's kind of what I'm dreaming up. Here's 
what I'm doing. So first, like, I want to hear a little bit about the origin story of Azer, but I'm thinking about some of the folks that are listening that might not be as like theological theological nerdish and don't know that name yeah and so and maybe that even like weaves into a bit of the origin story yeah. like so do you mind sharing a little bit about like where's that name come from where's and how did this organization start coming about oh my gosh so i remember that lunch with jason and what i part of what i remember is how incredibly unarticulate i was or inarticulate i was about describing what it is that was within me yeah and it has been a very long origin story. I think it's actually been like my whole life culminating into starting this company. I never would have imagined that I would have launched or led a company that was about women and wholeness and leadership. But if I look back on my story, I have been a leader my whole life, but there wasn't always space for me. And there wasn't always a place for me to use the gifts that I'd been given. There wasn't always opportunities for me to have my voice shared at the table or to be used on a stage. And I think that that is how a lot of like our best stories come about is when we look back on the whole story and see what has God been writing and how does that connect to now what you're passionate about or what uh, you've been doing up until now. So in launching Azer & Co, it was really because of a pattern interruption. I'd gotten fired from a job that had mattered to me. That was kind of where you and I even reconnected was soon around that time. and. I wasn't sure where to go. I didn't know what to do. And I had all of these years of like local church experience. I'd been coaching. I'd been speaking all over the country. I had been, you know, writing. But it felt like there was this moment in time where I needed to rethink where I was at in like the next stage of my vocation and in like using my story and my gifts in the world in a different way. I think I was 38 at the time. So there was even kind of like this, you know, I'd been in church world and leadership for about 20 years. And so what was kind of the next iteration or yeah, the next yeah. development of that? And I remember wrestling with all of these different passions and different experiences and different, you know, gifts and stuff, trying to figure out like, how does all of this come together? And I had a girlfriend when I was processing all of this, look at me and say, April, you have it tattooed on your arm. And I was like, what? And I, I literally have the word Azer, you've seen it, tattooed on my arm the Hebrew and the English translation of it. And I looked at it and I realized, oh my gosh, it's it's literally in my DNA. Like it is embedded into my being that I am an Azer. So Azer is a word that is used in the Old Testament 21 times. Twice it's used in Genesis 2 when it's describing God creating woman. And then most often in Genesis, the word Azer is translated as like helpmate or helpmeet depending on your translation, helper. But 16 times the word Azer is translated in the Old Testament as rescuer, strong helper, face-to-face deliverer, or warrior. And that translation, those 16 times, is used to describe God. And when I learned what that word meant and how it was used and translated in a way to to subjugate women, to put them in their place, to kind of put them in a secondary supportive role. But majority of the time, the word Azer is used to describe God. I was like, these two things are not adding up. Mm-hmm. They are not equally given the same merit in describing God or describing women. And so I had it tattooed on my arm to really remind me of who I am and that I am not 
created less than or secondary or supportive in the ways that I had been raised and taught about what the the role and the place of a woman a woman was. So that's kind of where Azer and Carl emerged was from my own story and really my own wrestling with who am I in my identity? What is it that I'm called to do in the world? And not just me, but half the world, the women all across the world. Yeah. Yeah. Like what's some of the kind of work that, that you do with Azer and Co? So we are a coaching company and we do coaching groups primarily uh, because we believe that transformation happens better together. And so lots of companies do one-on-one coaching and we do a bit of that as well, but we really do group coaching because that is where so much of the secret sauce lives for how people, have, how women experience transformation is in relationship with one another. Because we can call things out in each other. We can support. We can advocate. We can call each other out on a BS. Like all of transformation is so beautiful when there is that relationship with people that are like you, but also not like you. So coaching groups is kind of the main deal. But yeah. Yeah. So I want to. I want to ask you some questions about women in more egalitarian spaces. Okay. And so I think most of our folks know, like that are listening, probably know what egalitarian is. But for those of you that don't, there's two major like overarching views about how uh, people view men and women's sort of like space in the church. One would be called complementarian, which in some ways is a hierarchical view that says that to take them at their best argument, they would essentially say that that men and women are equal, they're co-equals, but they have different functions. And so there are functions that men can do in the church and in the home that women cannot do. And and so in that church, like a woman could not serve as an elder, as a senior pastor. Some of those churches, women couldn't preach from the stage and on and on. An egalitarian church would say men and women are both equal in function and in role. And that in those church spaces that women serve and men serve based off of giftedness, not off of gender. Yes. Right. So in the church that I had been leading, we went through a process where we transitioned and became an egalitarian church during my tenure. And one of the things that I was realizing is that I had all of this sort of baggage that I carried with me into that, mm. that I didn't realize was there. And sure. I, and so I, I want to first like, like talk about some of that and have you like speak into it a little bit. Cause I'd be curious if we were to like go back in time to me back then, 10, 15 years ago, like what would have been, if I had been open to it, what would have been some of the things that you would have said to me? So, so we had this woman on our staff who's a mutual friend of ours who she was our second preacher and I had a good relationship with her. And I remember I received this email from somebody in our church who I really respected a lot, who told me, who said like, Hey, I think she's really fantastic. I think you need to be like, have your guard up around her because I could see you all spending a lot of time together. You have some similarities in ways that like could end up being detrimental to your marriage. And so like, I just want you to be aware of that. So I, I felt like there was always this like sort of thing that was there. Yeah. Then along with that, we had what I later learned was the Billy Graham rule on staff. Mm-hmm. That was that, that you could not, that as a married man, I was not supposed to be alone with a woman in like, like in the car together in like going we, out for a meal. Yeah. Go out for a meal. Recording a podcast. Like Yeah. So like, it couldn't be like you and I are here that like, we couldn't have been, I could be in the office space at church because there's a lot of people around and I could do that. But, but like windows had to stay open, things like that. Right. So with this, this woman, I was thinking through a few things. Like one of the things we used to say was that, that my relationship with her was always through Allison, we would say. 
And so like if we were going to hang out together with if we we're going to hang out with her, I would ask Allison to call her or text her so that what? in making like personal connections. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> I haven't told you any of these things. And I told you I was going to tell you some stuff that was going to make you disappointed in me. So so whenever we would like hang out, they would be like, oh, we're going to hang out with her. Allison, would you like call her text her so that our personal connection like so that I wasn't making a personal connection with her in that way, that it was always through Allison. Right. Oh, my gosh. Was Allison so annoyed? Uh, I don't know if she would like that just made sense to us. Like okay. that was like okay. it It was like, oh, we're both friends with her. And like, this is what you do in those sorts of okay. situations. The reality is like, I think one of the things we figured out later is I was actually better friends with her. And she and I have stayed in better contact than Allison and her have sure. since she moved away. But in that period that we were like, my relationship with her runs through Allison. And then because we couldn't do things like be alone together, I can remember... <laughs> At least one time, and I think it was actually more times, where it, it she and I were going to the same place, yeah. and it didn't make sense for us to drive separately, that it was like, yeah. this is stupid. Yeah. And so I called Allison and put her on FaceTime, and then put oh. <laughs> put, put the phone. Hey, babe. <laughs> we're just driving to lunch. Just wanted you to hang out with me. Sorry to waste your time. <laughs> so, I can um, literally see your wife, like, rolling her eyes. <laughs> It's so annoying. So, like, looking back on it, I could probably give a bunch more instances, not just with her, but in other sort of, like, spaces with... Yeah. As women were, like, finding more and more places to lead in our church and we are creating space for that, we had this theology of that. Yeah. And we were trying to create space for it, but there was all this, like, carryover that was sure. coming in there. So, had you and I known each other then, and you're like, what the crap is going on? <laughs> like, what would... It have, if I had been open to like being coached about like, how do I better partner with women on my team? What would have been some of the things that you would have offered me then? Gosh, it's just, you know, I've been in this world for 20 plus years yeah, and the stories never surprise me, but they always disappoint me hmm. or they always make me sad because I'm like, man, it's 2021. And here we are having this conversation. So I think that one of the things that I, I have noticed is that those kinds of rules and systems always benefit men. Hmm. They actually don't help women because what happens is women then get left out of the meetings, of the conversations, of the activities, of the events, of the, the lunches, of the like sporting, you know, gatherings, whatever you call sporting things. And it really only serves men, that rule, to protect men. Now, I mean, I'm all for being wise and doing things that protect your marriage, you know, that are safeguards for not setting yourself up for stupid things yeah. or for you being a human and making poor choices. Obviously, that is really important. Can we, not to de derail you, so maybe you can circle back to it. I would be curious what you feel like some of those safeguards are that are helpful and healthy and that also, like, create space in the kinds of ways that you're talking about. Okay, so I'll, I'll give you a couple quick examples of my own marriage. Um, my husband knows I'm here right now with you, right? Like, I, I have always let him know when I'm going to meet with a man. Because I would never want him to hear like roundabout like, oh, I saw April at Starbucks and she was hanging out with so-and-so. And he's like, huh, who's that dude or was that about? Or like, I never want there to be a question of like to plant a seed of mistrust or of 
a lack of honor with okay, him. Okay, yeah. So I've always let him know, I'm going to hang out with this person. This is what we're doing. This is what we're you know talking about. It's the purpose of the meeting, whatever. I've also always respected if he has said, that dude makes me feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Or I don't feel like... He hasn't mistrusted me, but sometimes he has not felt great about a dude. And so I have also always honored and respected that. So is there a shift in like what we would be doing together or when we would be doing it or, you know, where we would be, you know, having that meeting or whatever. That has not happened very many times in our 20 years of marriage because he really trusts me and because he there's enough equity in our relationship, right, where it's there's that system. So I think that has been kind of the first and foremost is like, this is what I'm doing. This is where I'm going. This is who I'm going to be with. And that has been enough. But Brian also knows in the 25 years that I've been leading in church and faith spaces, I am almost always one of the only, if not the only female in the room. Mm -hmm. So if he were to say, babe, don't want you to go there and do that, I literally wouldn't have a career. I literally wouldn't have had a job for 20 years. Because that is the nature of my work. And even in running a, a company for women now, the vast majority of my one-on-one coaching, I do with men. So there are a lot of things that men tell me that are personal and that are deep and that are meaningful to them that, gosh, if there wasn't that kind of trust and sacred space in our marriage, I wouldn't be able to do the majority of the work that I've done. Yeah, that's good. That's helpful. Um, so sorry, I derailed you from yeah. you were sharing a bit about like what you would have. Yeah. So for me as a coach, the thing that is most important for me in setting the stage with a client is what is it that you want? What do you want on the other side of this coaching relationship? So three months down the road, six months down the road, where do you want to be that you are right now? What do you want to have that you don't have right now? And so in a starting point with a male pastor or a male leader that's going like, I don't love where I'm at right now in terms of how I view women or how I relate to women or the places that I'm able to develop them or create space for them to come into more of their potential. I would kind of dive into that and kind of dissect with them. Like, what is it that is not comfortable? What is it that you don't like? What is it that you want differently? What is it that feels not quite representative or aligned with either your theology or where it is that you would like to be as a leader? Mm-hmm. And then we would go from there. So that's incredibly specific and personal and contextualized. But that's where transformation really takes place is it has to come from a place internally of I want something different than what I have right now. Yeah. So we would get after that. Well, so let me ask you this then, if we were to like zoom out a little bit yeah. and think about, particularly I'm thinking about churches, that's that's where I'm connecting the most. And people that are listening to this are mostly connected in church spaces. Yeah. And in church spaces that are wanting to empower women that would say like, that would hold a theology that would say like women mm-hmm. can serve in any space here mm-hmm. and we want to empower them. What are some of the things that you're seeing that are, as you work with some churches yeah. and as you work with women in those spaces, What are some of the blind spots that, because they are still being led by men, by the majority of men. So it's men that are making decisions to create space for women in those churches to lead together. What are some of the things that you are seeing as like blind spots that, that men have in that space where they think they're being incredibly empowering, but they're missing it on a few spaces? Yeah. Kind of an overarching thought that I would have is that in, you know, the, decades that I've been doing work like this and working with women. You know, obviously I'm invited into spaces where if not egalitarian, 
they still have a high view of women and they still want there to be an increase of impact and of influence of women in their spaces. Otherwise, they don't invite me in, right? (laughs) To speak or to coach or whatever. Out of all hundreds of churches that I have worked with, I would probably be able to count on one hand the number of churches or spaces where women haven't felt the struggle. So even where there is an egalitarian theology or a desire to be better or, you know, a commitment to the equality and the equity of women in those spaces, I could still only count on one hand the amount of churches or spaces where women have gone. There hasn't been any issues here. I haven't struggled. So I think that speaks pretty deeply to a patriarchal view or like it's just in the water that that there is some sort of inherent power and privilege and perspective that like men have over women that it's it's just everywhere so blind spot wise i mean i've seen (laughs) across the uh, i mean just pick a subject um not having great maternity uh, policies or ways to be able to work from home or ways to be able to work remote obviously since covid that has changed quite a bit. There's been some really great advances when it comes to that kind of stuff. Childcare options, the ability to kind of shift how and when people work, women work, so that they can have it all. They can have the family and they can have the work. I think there's some blind spots in terms of development, which is one of the key reasons Azer and Co. exists, is there are far more developmental opportunities that are given to men than there are to women. I mean, statistically, you can see that. You can Google all kinds of stuff. But men seem to have more like formal education opportunities and financial resources to get there. But also in terms of like coaching or mentoring or therapy, like women have to really advocate for themselves for the most part when it comes to that kind of work. And it it feels really vulnerable for women to be able to do so because when a man asks for it, it is received more as like a developmental opportunity to get better. Okay. When women ask for it, I think it is perceived as a weakness or a lack that they have in order. And that's why it is needed. See the distinction yeah. in how I'm communicating yeah, 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 yeah. that? And so, I mean, women, I hear this all the time from women. We are taught, be grateful for what you have. Don't ask for more. And... Like you're going to need to work, you know, twice as hard as your male counterparts in order to kind of get the same opportunities or the same space. And so there really is kind of like a put your head down, do the work and push it, but put a smile on your face while you're doing it and say thank you at every opportunity. Hmm. Oh, crud. (laughs) (laughs) We got work to do. Yeah. Gosh. So I'm curious, like, I'm trying to think of how to word this because I'm having some interactions with some churches that have been and felt like they have been, and I I think from my vantage point, have been pretty empowering of women for a while. And it feels like all kinds of stuff is being surfaced over the past Mm -hmm. year and a half, right? Like, especially in the evangelical space, all kinds of stuff is being brought out, right? And so some of what it seems like that's doing is also like people that felt largely maybe content in the place that they were in they started to see like oh there are some cracks here that i maybe didn't notice before didn't let myself see before because it felt like this place is better than other places Mm -hmm. 
So some of what that's doing, some of what I'm hearing and experiencing are from senior pastors that are in churches where it was like, particularly around women for our conversation, where it was like, we've been doing a great job empowering women for a long time. Women have been elders with us for a long time. They've been on our main stage for a long time. They've been preaching and they're experiencing this sort of like pushback that's really, really new for them they, that they've never experienced before of women on their team who are feeling like, gosh, I, I don't have the same opportunities as men. And then the senior pastors are saying, why? We've never heard this before. We feel yeah. like we've been so good about this. Yeah. Help us to like push into some of those blind spots a little bit on like what, yeah. what maybe they might be missing, what like churches that have been doing a good job at that, but it's still, there's still something that's there. What, yeah. What would you say to those leaders? I hear a lot of that when like a woman is up on a stage, you know, five or six times a year, or we've got one woman on the executive team, or we've got a woman on our elder board. Okay. And um, like, yes, we have created space. So we've got, you know, half of our staff is women. It all comes back to <laughs> like, mm, I have like 15 thoughts going through my head. So I'm needing to streamline them. On the stage, like my dream would be 50%. Half of the weekends are being taught by women and half of them are being taught by men. 50% of the elders are women. 50% are men. I do believe we are better together. It's it's not about like the response to patriarchy is not matriarchy. It's partnership. So it is not about like, okay, you're being given 10% or you've got 25% of that space. It is about like really the sharedness of that. And then also in like for staffs that have a high percentage of women on the staff, a lot of times those positions are in coordinating or director or administrative roles. They're not in influencing decision-making leadership or communicating capacities. And so while it may look like on surface value, there is opportunity, I would dig into it more, especially if there are women that are going like, I'm not content or this is not quite right. Why is that? And as often and as much as possible that men or decision-makers can have a posture of curiosity and not defensiveness, that will actually get us somewhere. Curiosity is really important. Yeah, that's really good. I like that a lot. That I mean, it feels like curiosity covers a multitude of sins. <laughs> it's um, my favorite quality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, yeah. So in those sorts of spaces, they are still being like, it's still a man who's a senior pastor. And even, I wonder if even a part of the reason that he, he's going to preach more is because a part of our model of ministry has yeah. been... Yeah. A senior pastor needs to have a majority voice, mm -hmm. right? So there's not even opportunity then mm -hmm. for it to be a 50-50 voice. Yeah. Or it's, well, we started creating space for women, but there aren't enough qualified women to move into these roles, right? So here's my quick pushback so, on that. Can I, yeah, can no, I step on the little soapbox for a second? That's why, I'm, that's why I'm setting you up for, please. Okay. I can't even tell you how many subpar messages that I have heard from men <laughs> who are developing their teaching gifts who the senior pastor is going, they, I see potential mm -hmm. and I want to develop the potential. So I'm going to give you these opportunities. That is not mm. what happens for women. Yeah. You have to be already at a place that you don't get up on the stage and fail because all eyes are looking for an opportunity to either disqualify you or to say that she doesn't have it quite yet, or she needs to spend more time like in study or in education or whatever, or in smaller groups teaching. But I cannot 
overemphasize how often I have heard the opposite about like, we're just creating space for this man to develop. And the weight that that puts on women, the pressure that that puts on us to perform at a level where it's like, crap, I'm not going to not only lose the opportunity for myself in the future, but also for all of the women behind us. Like our mutual friend, Nancy Beach, has said repeatedly, this is from Harvard Business Review, of the, the freight of being iconic. And that is a characteristic, I would say, that for women who are leading in, in spaces, they feel, even when there is a larger percentage of women, you know, like beyond the 10% or the one in the room, is they feel the freight of being iconic. And they blow that opportunity for themselves. It's not just for themselves, but it's for those who are coming after them. And that's incredibly unfair. Yeah. Oh, gosh. That I'm so glad you brought that up. I just was talking with a friend recently whose church had like shifted some things about how they viewed women and she was trying to figure out her role in it and was pushing to be either ordained or licensed in it. And they finally decided like, we're open to licensing you and, and we'll create this pathway that you can go through. And so I was connecting with her before she was going to do like an interview with them through a theological interview and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And we're just talking through some questions where like, just want to process them. Right. Yeah. And we started processing though, then like, okay, well, what happens out of this? Like if, if you don't get licensed, you don't, whatever. And she talked about like, I feel this weight of that. I am like, I'm creating space for whether or not women will continue to get licensed or not. Yep. And I just didn't even know how to like, I wanted to be able to say to her like, oh, don't put that weight on your shoulders. Like, that's not fair for you. You shouldn't go into it with Mm -hmm. that. But I also don't get what that's like. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't, I don't think I even really knew. I stumbled through some stuff, but I didn't even really know like what to say to her. Like, what would you have said to, to my friend in that? I would have said, you're right. That's true. That's true. Well, that sucks. And it sucks. And it really is a heavy weight and it, but to, you can't invalidate something that is true. Yeah. You know, like we, you have to speak reality, which is like first task of leadership, right? To find that reality. And then I would invite her to imagine like what her best contribution still is in that process. Or if she were to think about her daughter or the young girls that she is mentoring or, you know, the students in her youth ministry, whatever, whatever it is like to envision like what is possible and how you can open things up for them, I I would shift the pressure into opportunity and into potential. Like it is a mindset that does need to be addressed and then, and then shifted. That's good. Well, spoiler, uh, she did end up passing and she got licensed, which is wonderful. I was really excited for her (laughs) and really proud of her. And yeah, it was really great. So you're, you do with Azer and co like you go into the understands, right? Like you'll go into a church and you'll do like a coaching community with the women that are on staff at that, like at that particular place. Like you'll do ones with people coming in from multiple places. Yeah. We also do it at like one place, like yes, at a can. church, go in mm-hmm. and be with, yep. with that team. So I do have, like, I, I want to hear about like what that is, what the benefit is for a church, like how that's helpful for them. Yeah. But for that, I'm kind of curious about like one of the moves that I had made when I was leading uh, church was we had we had like the traditional men's ministry women's ministry sort of breakdowns sure and I started to see a breakdown of discipleship by always separating out men and women in those ways yeah. and started trying to create more discipleship communities that were multi-generational mm-hmm. that were cross-gender that were yeah. like 
different stages of life, married, single, yeah, young families, empty nesters, trying to have like communities like that, seeing that as like, oh, the best kind of growth can happen in the space where like we have different sorts of voices all speaking into it. So now talk to me about like, well, then why would we separate out some of those people and have a whole separate thing for them? Yes. So some of it, some of it is because of safety and, and, and cultivating a space that allows for there to be both a healing and then a strengthening from within to be able to go back into those spaces. So I am all for that. I mean, I love, love, love. I think some of our best transformation happens in the diversity of those spaces. So 100%, yes, that is often not the first step Hmm. or it's often not what is necessary in order to be able to go into that and not lose your voice or to not lose like a piece of yourself that you can bring. And I would say one of the top five issues or concerns that women have when they come into coaching is they want to increase their confidence. And it is because it's been beating the crap out of them for a long time since they were little girls. I mean, the average age or the the, the peak of a girl's self-esteem is eight years old. Are you saying that? That is messed with me. It is. It's terrible. I mean, I remember when my daughter was eight years old, she is now 11. And I was like, no, 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 no. I will not accept that this is the peak of her self-esteem and that from here on out, it's just going to get beat out of her. So the, the coming apart with a community of women who go, I get it. I see you. You don't have to explain that. You don't have to define that for me. I've been there. Like, I, I am there. Like, that is my story, too. There is a real like letdown internally, like a deep sigh of relief to go, I am seen. I don't have to explain that. I don't have to talk about it anymore. But also, let's get on with it. Like, let's move forward and creating some new language, having some new mindsets, you know, shifting some internal postures, the dialogue internally changing, getting some different results. Like all of that happens in coaching because you're in a safe space with some folks that get it. And then there is a strengthening to then be able to go back out and do the kind of work that you're talking about. Yeah, that's good. So give me a pitch for a senior leader who's a man for like, like why would it be helpful or beneficial for them to have Azer and co come in and do some work with the women on his team? Oh, there's a dozen reasons, Mike. (laughs) I mean, one of them is I get the fact that there's a lot of kind of competing agendas, but just multiple plates that you're spinning as a senior leader. And development and really intentional, deep, intense development is not always possible for a senior pastor, right? Like it's it's either not in your wheelhouse or you don't have the capacity for it because of all of the other spinning plates. So we're support. Like we come in and are aligned with goals and mission and priorities that you already have. And we want to help you do that better. But there does take a, a bit of humility to go like, we can't do it all. And like, I'm going to need a little help here. So let us help you, like help us help you. And so that's part of like a, just a starting point is going like, you're going to need some help with development because it can't all happen internally. Also, because you do have blind spots, like we've talked about a couple of times today, there are going to be some things that we're going to be able to see coming in at, in our coaching that you're not going to be able to see. And when we can collaborate and partner with you, there is a really like catalytic effect that happens there because it's like, oh my gosh, I just never, I never knew what I didn't know because I've had the blinders on. I've been running my lane. I've been doing my thing. 
And so taking that stuff off allows you to go quicker and faster. Also, women are such a good freaking investment. I mean, we run the world for real. <laughs> there are, I mean, the amounts of impact and influence that women have, not by nature of power, like, but by the nature of serving and being able to like raise families and uh, all the things, right? Like there's, there's so much that women can contribute in better ways if there is some training and if there's some coaching alongside of the work that's already being done. And I don't know, I, I should probably stop there. But I think that, I think we really want to support what it is that you're already doing and help you do it better and take off some of those ceilings and limitations that women are walking around with, whether they know it or not, that ultimately are hurting both of you. So everybody benefits when there's an investment there. That's good. Where do folks find you if they are interested? Yeah, we're on the gram, the IG. Look at you, hip with the kids. Mm, yeah, super good. And we're also on TikTok. I mean, we've got like 30 followers. You're it's on not TikTok? like it's not like we're influencers <laughs> over there, y'all. But we have we have temp we have tiptoed into that space. So find us at Azor and Co. E Z E R A N D C O on Instagram. We've got a Facebook page. Uh, websites azorandco.com. Love it. April, you are a gift. Thanks for <laughs> spending time today. This was super fun and I'm hopeful that this all recorded. Oh, good Lord. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks, friend. Hey there. If you're curious about how coaching groups would benefit your church and female leaders, check out our website for more info. It's azerandco.com slash coaching dash groups. Our six-month online coaching groups are actually 35% off through January 21st. Even better, you can register a group of women from your church. Since transformation happens better together, there is exponential benefit when multiple women from your community experience this together. Mike is going to drop the links in the show notes so you can check it out. Investing in your female staff is one of the best investments you can make. Invest in her this year. Thanks so much.